Hi, I'm Sabrina and he's Marcus. And we are two of the founders of The Black Trail Runners. You can find us on Instagram at The Black Trail Runners. We're a community and campaigning group seeking to increase inclusion, participation and representation of black people in trail running. If something resonates with you, please let us know and share online. Also, leave your review on the podcast platform that you selected as it helps our podcast grow. Your support helps to make this podcast possible. Thank you for downloading this episode. Now, let's head to the conversation. Hi, Sabrina. Great to have you back on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. You sound like you've got a little bit of a cold there, Marcus. I do. Hopefully it's not COVID, but um, <laughs> <laughs> jokes aside, I feel we probably shouldn't joke about that. But, no, isn't uh, it funny, though, how you have to like hold in coughs <laughs> if you're out and about? Because the looks you get, like people just turn as if you're like in some kind of zombie apocalypse. Yeah. If you cough or if you sneeze, don't they? Yeah, if you sniffle, it's like a pin drops. Everyone <laughs> looks at you from like two meters apart or whatever across the road, just like to hear you. Just like yeah, yeah, no, it's not. so true. I know we shouldn't joke about it, but I think if you can't see some kind of light joy of this whole crazy situation, then you're just going to end up in a in a in a sea of darkness. Yeah, I mean, I've got um, just to clarify, I've got a cold from my son. And as you know, with like kids and family, like one one has it, it sort of transfers across the house. It's just going around in circles, which is great. Mm. It's like knits. I don't know if you've had the whole knits experience. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, let's not call it to existence. So hopefully, not. <laughs> <laughs> let's not call knits into existence because knits and afro hair. Oh my god, that's a whole new episode. It's a whole. Maybe that's. The K, is that how you spell knits? No, it's not. Knits is N. Anyway, we digress. We digress. It's one for the future. I'm, I'm sure people are looking forward to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, before you ask me what I've been up to this week, I'm going to take the lead here because I know you have done something momentous, which if people don't follow you on social media, why not? Um you, the last time we spoke, were going into your Dorney Lake Marathon. So, Marcus, what happened? Thank you. So, I was going into that marathon with the aim to run a sub three hour marathon, and thankfully, I achieved it. That was my fourth attempt. So, last year, I tried three times and it didn't, I got close, but it just didn't happen. And then this time, I uh, had a race, an official race, which was really cool. But it's a different type of race because due to social distancing we'll go from waves so you're running you know a lot of it by yourself so there's four laps going around Dorney Lake at the start the first two laps we had like crosswinds it was raining so it wasn't ideal but it was okay and then the wind direction changed towards the end and it was just headwinds and as anyone knows what Dorney Lake is like it's pretty open and exposed so it wasn't pleasant and I was just trying to hang in there do my best just think about the reasons why I was out there, it was really challenging, but thankfully I got it done and uh, came in with 256. So, oh man, really happy with that. That is Marcus. Like, I was willing you on. Like, we talk about the power of community, and actually, the A to Z of trail running this week is the letter C. 
And, you know, the black trail runners community were so behind you, as as was your social media community. And to see kind of that time come in, I was like whooping all around my house. Like it's, that is hard graft. And it just goes to show, I know that you work with a coach. And again, that's something we're going to talk about later in the A to Z of trail running, that the, the power of coaching. But kudos, mate. Like, I know it's like Dorney Lake. Could you classify Dorney Lake as a bit of a trail? What's the surface like underfoot? At some points, it kind of went off the the path, but it's generally, you know, like, like con- not concrete, but you know I mean, quite a, a yeah. hard sort of uh, compact sort of surface underfoot. Yeah. There's a couple of bits where you had to do a turnaround, but yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't too bad. I mean, if you if you like doing laps, but to be honest, you can't be. It's a situation that we're in, you know. We that's it. The, there's limited races, and I thought, well, it's better than nothing. And the competition there was just ridiculous. I mean, I ran two fifty six, and I still finished a hundred and thirty first. Wow! So you could tell, like, how quick the guys and women up front were yeah. that, that came before me. So there's a lot of people there because I, I think they knew as well that there weren't a lot of races happening. So, but for me, it was just an amazing feeling, and then it's you, you do it and it's like but there's no crowds it's such a weird yeah. feeling it's like doing a it is like a time trial but obviously a race and you get a medal at the end but there's no crowds there and sounds like a trail race it sounds yeah. like a trail yeah. sounds like you know often in trail races you know you're out there and because of the nature of trail races some of the or trail runs some of the 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 areas that you're running in are quite inaccessible and unless you're actually running there or climbing there so uh, yeah. yeah no crowds welcome to my world but what I would say is probably the same as like in, in trail racing and trail running is that the community between the runners was just amazing. And we were all supporting each other because we mm. all knew what we were going through. So it, it made the suffering, I'm not sure it's the right word, but just almost more bearable because we, I knew that we were all going through it. Yeah. We all sort of cheered each other on. So I really enjoyed that sort of aspect of, of running, which you sometimes don't always get with, with like more crowds and things like that. Cause I think it's almost going to be a bit overwhelming, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad it, you know, I, I did it after the fourth attempt and the last two weeks I've just done not a lot. I put on a couple of extra kilos, <laughs> eating and drinking. And uh, my first run today, man, that was a shock to the system. So. <laughs> well, honestly, Marcus, you are inspirational. And, and yeah, um, there's so much, so much to to talk to you about on that. And I'm, I'm sure that we will talk about that further as the checkpoint goes on. But um, And certainly when we talk about coaching later, we can yeah, talk uh, we can talk about it there but yeah i mean i know that we've got a, we've got a segment coming up later on which is all about our very first black trail runners trail taster weekend in wendover woods yes but before we get there i mean how have you been uh, in the last week or so well yeah okay i mean i'm moving house personally at the moment so that's a big thing and um just a few kind of personal kind of issues with friends that are very ill so I won't I won't uh, beat around the bush you know my anxiety and kind of low mood has been has been prevalent but um, I am trying to remember every day to be grateful for three things a day and I have just this last week started my new training block so I'm going into um, getting my legs turning over a little bit faster to take on some trails next year and I work very, very well to a plan. It's who I am. And, but you know what, getting out and getting some miles in and getting out on the trails, it's just, 
yeah, it's it's really been what I've needed this past week to kind of manage what's going on in my personal life and just to give myself some headspace. So, yeah, thank God for trail running. Yeah, and like you say, with moving house, it's one of the most stressful things that we can do. And not to rub it in as well, especially with this year that we're all having. Mm-hmm. So I think you're only human, right? So oh, Right, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think it's really important to be – to speak up and to be open and honest when we are struggling. You know, I, I try and maintain a positive attitude. I always, you know, looking at, you know, looking on the, the brighter side of, of life, but there's no getting around it. You know, I, I do deal with my, you know, mental health issues and, and it's important for me to be vocal about that when I'm not feeling so good, but the power again of community in, in sharing on some of those things on social media and some of the really beautiful heartfelt messages that I've been receiving of other people who are going through similar stuff is just, you know, it is, it just showcases the power of the power of community of people that you've maybe never even met who are looking out for you. So, you know, it's, it's heartwarming. The power of community is incredible, especially during this year and as it shows. So as really encouraging to hear that. And as you said, you know, we've got the first part of the uh, podcast, which I jumped into a a bit earlier. um, (laughs) So you went into a little bit earlier before I sort of came back to ask how you were. So we've got that sort of part where we're going to go behind the scenes of what happened with our first trail taster event. Oh, it sounds amazing. I mean, I didn't manage to to get there, but there was quite a few of our co-founders and community members and Yeah, it sounds like they had a really fantastic day full of running, full of confidence building stuff, full of tips and advice. Can't wait for the next one. Yeah, same here. And the second part of the podcast, which will follow that, will be the interview with Charlie Dark, which I'm really looking forward to listening to. That was conducted with Phil Young, who's one of the founding members of Black Trailers as well. So uh, we're really looking forward to listening to that interview. I'm so excited. I've followed Charlie and Rundem crew for years. I love, love, love what they do as a crew, as a community. And yeah, I've been really dying to, yeah, dying to have him on the Black Trail Runners podcast. So to have Phil interview him and, um, and be able to share that with you guys listening is, is like bucket list tick for the checkpoint. So yeah, can't wait to hear it. Same here. And one actually random story that about Charlie that I've not actually shared online is when I ran the New York City Marathon back in 2016, I think I'd just started my social media. So I was still early days and I followed Charlie and Random Crew. And I remember running through a certain part of the course and I remember seeing Charlie. He was going, go on, Marcus, keep going. You're doing really well. And I was just like, don't you in the shock? You're just like, how the hell does he know who I am? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And from then, he's been such a, an amazing supporter. So he's got a lot on his plate as well. And for someone to sort of reach out and just give you that encouragement is so valuable. Yeah, thank you, Charlie, for that as well. Yeah, thanks very much, you know, helping to amplify the message and sharing sharing your journey and your stories too with us here. Yeah, is it, very, you know, we're very grateful and, and, and yeah, privileged to have you on. So with that said, let's go and listen to some audio from the Trail Taster Weekend. The 
The checkpoint is supported by the North Face, whose fundamental mission remains unchanged since 1966, to provide the best gear for their athletes and the modern day explorer, support the preservation of the outdoors and inspire a global movement of exploration. You know, in the countryside, when you're driving down the high street and there's some kind of bird of prey, I'm not going to say an eagle, but I'm not, I'm not lying, it wasn't small, eating some roadkill, some dead badger. You're not, you're not getting that in Brixton, that's for sure. So I'm just on my way to Wendover, which is on the lead up to the Chilterns. It might even be in the Chilterns, who knows? It's about an hour outside London where so I've come from South East London it's taken me just over an hour it wasn't too bad of a journey around the motorway and I can say straight away it's absolutely beautiful here Wendover I mean I thought it was a type of cheese apparently not it's a small village and it's encapsulated by these wonderful forests that are set on a hill absolutely really rather stunning I'm here for the first BTR trail taster session. I think we've got about a dozen people from all around the London area, I guess, who've come to, uh, I guess, learn a little bit more about trail running. I get the feeling that I'm going to be the worst trail runner there, but I'm not perturbed by that at all. Got me running shoes, even got flash jacket to wear. So I'm going to look the part, even if I can't run very well. We're lucky enough to have the expert advice of James, who heads up Centurion Running. He's going to take us through the day. He knows the woods pretty well, apparently. Let's hope so, because uh, they look pretty big, to be honest with you. Um, and he's going to give us uh, a few tips on how to train uh, the different zones that you go into when you're running, how to feed yourself when running, and, uh, well, maybe hopefully a few techniques. Let's uh, see what he's got to say. Yeah, so it's the first um, specific to trail running workshop we've done. We just want to cut through some of the barriers to access, really, cut through the learning curve and try and encourage... We've got runners of all abilities and experience levels here today. We just want everyone to feel a little bit more comfortable getting out on the trail, what that means, and to be able to do it sustainably. Um, Trail has a number of different aspects to it that take it away from road running that make it so special. Uh, and I just want to be able to share some of those tips um, with, with who we've got here today and, and ultimately to get out for a run in Wendover itself. Wendover is such a wonderful kind of mecca for trails because you've got trails of every description. You've got some steep climbs and descents in the woods. You've got beautiful bridleway, woodland trails. Today's an opportunity for some of the runners here that are less familiar with uh, the area to, to just see what it's all about. It's really great for access here too, which is why we picked it. Whether you're trying to just get on the trail for the first time and do 10 minutes on a trail, or whether you're, you know, we've got runners here who are doing 100 mile races fairly regularly, but it's, it's adventure to me. And you know, I said to people today, you should really consider anything over an hour is, is a long run, especially on trail. And to just create an adventure out of it is definitely not all about going long. You know, your goal can be just to, to go and experience trails on a regular basis. That is the most worthwhile goal of all because that will improve the enjoyment in your running. 
Um, I rarely meet people who try trails and, and think, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm only going to run on the road. It's normally something they continue to incorporate into their training and racing. Definitely not all about racing, um, especially at the moment with races few and far between because of the COVID-19 situation. It, it's been a great opportunity for people to explore their local we, We're basically um, next to the Ridgeway National Trail here. So we're going to do a little bit on the Ridgeway and have a little look around Wendover Woods. Um, just, to, just get people thinking about their effort level and how when you're on the trail, you know, hiking, climbs, taking it easy on descents, running, they're all things that you need to build into your skill sets and we're going to discuss them when we're out on the run. But basically, just hopefully give people a really enjoyable, quick hour snapshot of just the trails in this area um, and go from there. Okay, so we've got some intrepid trail runners here. Uh, we've just come back from a, what? How long was that? It's a 10K run. Yeah, it's about 10K what, through what, the woods. What did you find, how did you find today? It was lovely. It was really invigorating being outside in the woods. Um, with a group of people that looked like me. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the special thing, I think, for today. That, um, yeah, obviously the group's just started and um, most of the communication's been online. Um, so it was really nice to kind of have a live event and actually meet people and, and run with them. And it's such, such a beautiful area anyway. So, yeah, really enjoying it. You, you look as though you're, you're a fairly accomplished runner. <laughs> do, do, you, do you do a lot of trial running already? Yeah, I, I do. Um, so I live uh, locally in Luton, in Bedfordshire, and Wendover Wood is actually my park run. It's a park run I do. I have a nearer park run, but this is more challenging. And uh, I just really love the wood, woods, the fact that you can kind of lose yourself really in a very kind of deep space um, and time slips away and then you sort of find your way out of the woods and it's lovely. I just love it. Now, one, one thing I'm just going to pick up on, you said that today was Ellie's because you, you were running with people who look like you. Do you find that that's an issue in your, in your normal day-to-day -day running? I'm mostly the only one. I mean, I, um, I volunteer at Parkrun as well as run. So um, usually I'm like the regular black person in the Parkrun, but uh, there are some people that come over from um, Aylesbury but it's usually just like one or two. For me, it's never an issue because I own the landscape as well. You know, it's not, uh, nobody can tell me, oh, you don't belong here because I think, well, hey, my people are Jamaican and they're country people. So when I go back to Jamaica, that is what I see, you know? So it doesn't, you know, I don't have any issue with being a black person, but it's just nice to be in a group and to see people like us representing, so. Okay, tell, yeah. tell, me about your, tell me about yourself. Yeah, well, I, I've been running, mostly uh, road running for uh, more than 20 years. And um, yeah, I used to run in Daventry area uh, about, oh, that was uh, 15 years ago or so. Uh, so, but it was so beautiful today. We're in uh, running in the woods here. Um, I live uh, in Sutton, uh, which is in uh, like uh, 
North Downs area and uh, we've got a lot of hills there. And, uh, but I've, I'm challenged with the hills here <laughs> today. Yeah, I'm really well, well challenged. And uh, I found somewhere else that's uh, very interesting and very, um, yeah, and very invigorating, yeah, to, 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 come, to come to run. And, uh, and I love the group because uh, the, the, the group just melt, uh, makes one feel at home and very homely and we just, it's, it's just, just freedom. Yeah, it's a, it's a freedom run, yeah. Okay, that's just our first BTR run, I guess, isn't it? The first official one, how was it? Yeah, it's been great. It's just been a really nice event to get some members of the community together and go out and show them some trails that they may never have been on, show them a few skills and just really enjoy some time getting to know our community. How many people did we have here today? So we had 10 community members um, and then we had obviously James and Drew who were helping us out with the workshop skills. Um, and it was just, it was great. I have to say we had a really interactive session. Loads of questions were asked, questions were answered. Um, and I think we've got some, some yeah, really good relationships going forward. Now, the organisation of this happened mostly online through the Facebook group and Instagram group. Maybe for people who are listening to the podcast who don't necessarily know about that, maybe explain a little bit. Yeah, so um, follow us on Instagram. We are at Blake Black Trail Runners. And on Facebook, we have a private group. So you just need to um, ask to become a member and we will add you on. And that's just Black Trail Runners on Facebook. And we post all of our updates there. We talk about our, our campaigns and we also talk about, um, especially in the Facebook group, it's very much a membership organisation. It's very much about creating this community where it's a safe space for black runners and black trail runners to talk about everything and anything, including their training, but also including their lives and what they're getting up to. I think James said it best when he said it's about exploring and it's about adventure um, and it's about scaring yourself a little bit and maybe taking yourself outside of your comfort zone and realizing that you can do hard things and perhaps you can do things that maybe you haven't seen other people like you do. There's no reason that you can't set your mind to do um, any of these things, be it be it a race or be it just going out your front door and doing a little run on the trails and enjoying the open spaces. One of the great things about today as well as obviously that being in the countryside and having fresh air and hearing the birds and seeing the fields uh, and so on and so forth is the fact that there was a lot of people of colour running in nature. How was that for you? It was, I mean... Yeah, Sonny and I were talking about this. Sonny, one of the other co-founders, um, we were talking about this as we were running down a hill. He was running much faster than I was. Um, yeah, it felt a bit emotional, to be honest. It was kind of like when we, when we started this group back in July, it was one of those things that we thought down the line we wanted to see. And then and we actually saw it. it. It happened kind of right before our eyes. And it, it's, it was just really nice being part of some of the conversations and the chats and just seeing the community come together. Um, and yeah, being in that space and owning that space, it was a really... Yeah, it was a, yeah, quite an emotional moment. So we're going to do some more? Yes, we definitely are. Um, yeah, just watch out for our Instagram and watch out on our Facebook and we'll be updating those going forward. But definitely, um, this is not one and done. We're going to be doing some more. And in the future, we will also be having our own Black Trail race. So that's something to look forward to too. That was good fun, wasn't it? I enjoyed that. A few hills that are running around. A lot of information from James and his crew. Probably a dozen runners going through Wendover Woods, 
the light was fantastic. You get these shafts of light that come through the canopies and just gives the little dots of light on the forest floor, which is covered in the leaves as they start mulching down for autumn and you get this beautiful smell that comes up of, of, of pine and of vegetation. Just the whole forest smells its really rich natural smell as opposed to the smell of diesel that you normally get on the high street around my ends. This was a great day. It just makes you really feel alive being out here in the countryside and more rural areas. And also something that I really discovered today is that when you run with a group of people, you get dragged along and those miles just disappear. What would normally sometimes be an effort to get up some of the hills. We were just chatting, we were just cruising. It was all good. Everyone left with a smile on their face, a little bit sweaty. Um, legs were all good, didn't overexert. Just nice to get out of the city, isn't it? So, Charlie, thank you very much. I know you're super busy. You're one of the busiest people I know. <laughs> it's just an illusion. <laughs> and, it's, and it's not even 9.30 to all the listeners. It's 9.30. That's, that's in the a.m., by the way. There you go. And Charlie's, Charlie was there before me. Actually. I was <laughs> making my final cup of coffee for this morning. And uh, <laughs> I heard you on saying, hello, hello, is anyone there? Phil, you there? <laughs> so thank you, thank you for taking, taking time out. I have this vision in my head at the moment that you're in this uh in, in your kind of wooden studio with <laughs> cool looking skateboards up on the wall probably some turntables yeah boxes of dub plate seven inch reggae yeah uh, bangers <laughs> that sounds and, about right and some incredible artwork is is that right is that is that the picture have that, i got the right picture you've got the correct picture indeed oh my god so where's that is that in your your house or in your garden? That's my the... just that's my studio in an undisclosed location. Right, okay. <laughs> I hear you. Secret, secret spot. And you spend a lot of time in there. I mean, I keep on seeing it because obviously I follow you on Instagram. And yeah. You're you, you post a lot on Instagram, a lot on the stories. Yeah. And you've always got a new radio show or a new hustle going on. Do you spend a lot of time in that studio? I have been doing over um over lockdown. I've always, always, always had studios for like the last 25 years. But um, I do, I, I have spent the most amount of time that I've spent in the studio since recording Attica Blues stuff yeah. back in the day. So um, it's been a godsend, really. You know, having a space that you can escape to, to kind of create and think and, you know, come up with new projects has been really good. And is that is that a, a clean space or is it a messy space? Can you compartmentalize? Uh, yeah, compartmentalize is that the right word? You know, can you do, do all the stuff? You know, some of some of these kind of artistic minds, things go all over the place, and it's organized chaos. Or are you one of these people who has everything in the right place? No, I most definitely do not. But there is an order of sorts, and the state of tidiness varies according to the project. But right. for example, my my record collection is not in alphabetical order like it used to be back in the day. Wow. You know. Um, in alphabetical order. Is that per artist or by track? It used to be by artist and by label. I had a meticulous, right. I was very much into, I need to know where 
any record in my collection is at any time. But wow. that just kind of, um, <laughs> over the years, that it gets messy. it's been erased, yeah. I just kind well, of, you know, ran out of space and got too many tunes. Well, what I'm, I'm actually fascinated by is that you, you're still using vinyl an awful lot, aren't you? Yes, most definitely. Most I mean, definitely. I had a, I've got a big, well, not, I say big, compared to yours, it's, it's, it's probably mediocre, if not small, but a few thousand records, yeah. and, and they don't really move. They stay on, <laughs> they stay on a record shelf. And my wife kind of looks at them occasionally and give me that eye roll and tucks a little bit, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to say, well, you're not using them, are you? Because I'm using digital yes, all the time yes. and, it's, and it's become yes. very, very easy. And I've become quite lazy, yep. actually. Yep. But, uh, you know, hat, hat off for you to keep on, you know, playing the vinyl. Are you buying vinyl still? Yep, still buying vinyl, if not more now than ever. You know, now's a really good time to be buying vinyl. There's a you know large, a lot of it around. There's still things being reissued. I'm you know I, I count myself as a DJ first, record collector third. Right. And so you know I know loads of people who have amazing record collections, but they never play them. Yeah, I'm one of them. Yeah, I you know. So I'm sorry. It's okay. That's okay. I I totally understand because when you know when digital came, it was kind of championed as this kind of you know, space saver, time saver. But actually, you know, I, 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 I do like playing digitally, but my first preference will always be playing on vinyl. I just like how it feels. I just like how it sounds. I like the process that you go through and it keeps my record collection alive. Absolutely. Because well, one, I think, yeah, because yeah, really, the one thing that anyone will know, if, once your collection gets into the thousands, it starts becoming a bit of an albatross. It's a bit like a museum that you have yeah. to cart round from house to house. Well, that's that was one of the main main issues, right? Is that it, it's damn heavy vinyl. It's very heavy, man. <laughs> it's so heavy. It's it's actually ridiculous how heavy vinyl actually is, you know. And I do have moments where I go and DJ with like with two USB sticks in my pocket, thinking, "Wow, man! Like, you know, my back is happy today. It's been saved." And. and- I've been, you've been, when we were on lockdown, you were doing, uh, was Vinyl Factory doing a reggae yeah. selection. Yeah. Right? Is, yeah. Is, it, is it mainly reggae or was it, when no. I first met you, you were doing, there was a lot of Detroit yeah. back in back in the days. And of course, your own music was, well, you, you invented the, a certain genre of music. We'll get <laughs> onto that. But what are you playing at the moment? Um, at the moment, I'm playing a lot of funk, soul, and disco. I, wow. I basically, um, during lockdown kind of had an epiphany which was i need to be listening to happier music during this period of time so um basically um i started kind of delving into the funk soul and disco records that i would that i first started collecting when i first kind of got into collecting music and that's been a really interesting um kind of ritual in the morning waking up kind of doing a dj set for an hour before starting the day playing records and kind of just pretending that I'm 16 and I'm about to do my A-levels and I've got I've got no cares in the world, <laughs> as opposed to being in a global pandemic. Well, well yeah, I, I, I know that's a, that's, that's a tough one, isn't it? Actually, my, my son is, what, is 17 in the midst of a, a global pandemic and he doesn't, it doesn't seem to affect him that much. You know, a lot of the kids, and you see, you see on TV, kids not even being too bothered. I think maybe when you get, when you get older and you and you realise that life doesn't live forever, 
did it start? It starts to real impact on you. That definitely, that's what I felt myself. Yeah, I mean, I even I've got a you know seen to be sixteen year old and a thirteen year old, and boredom is the biggest problem that they have. But they're right. not really like you know freaking out too much about you know the situation that we're going in through now. Because I think you know I I think the stakes are different. You know, the younger you are. Yeah. Course. Whereas I think when you you know you get to our age, it's kind of you've been around the block a few times. You've kind of been in situations of unrest and turmoil, and you know you know what can happen if things are not done in a certain way. You know the repercussions mm-hmm. of that. So um, you know, but I just think that for everyone, it's kind of this situation that we find ourselves in is not ending anytime soon. And I think actually, once you accept that then it allows you space to thrive. Okay, and music's a way out of it for you. Most definitely. A way to, to yeah. separate yourself yeah. from it. And, and in yeah. fact, the first time that we, we met was was around music, and that was, yep. I think, what was that? That would have been the 90s. Yeah, the with, mid to late 90s. With Attica, Attica Blues. And yeah. actually this morning, in preparation for this, and I say in preparation, I've, I've got I've got scrib- scribbled notes and <laughs> went on to my phone as I was walking the dog and listened to Blueprint, which I advise any listener here to get a hold of a copy. And that I do have on vinyl, <laughs> and, but that that's a that's a special one. That's not only on vinyl; it's in a plastic it's a plastic sleeve. <laughs> You're doing better that, than me. I don't think I've actually got a, a you know a functioning vinyl copy of that record at the moment. Oh, what what an absolute banger! And it's as fresh today as it was in the the late nineties. Thank you very much. Thank so, you. so let's let's go back to that time. Yeah, Charlie Attica Blues. Uh, you, Robber. Tony, maybe was A side involved in that as well. To some no, degree? the core group was myself, Tony, and Robert, and you know, A side and various other people were people who would just come down and hang out in the studio and give feedback on tracks and suggestions for samples and so on and so forth. But that was, as far as I'm aware, why you were on you were creating something, it was a new genre of music, right? What what came to be termed as as trip hop, I guess, whether, whether you like that term or not, London had produced this, this thing. And I guess it's something you can put it in the same, as, as far as groundbreaking movements as drum and bass, as jungle, as grime, as drill. This was something so new. And take me back to those times in the 90s when you were creating that kind of stuff. How old were you? What was London like? <laughs> well, I started making music at uni. Um, so that would have been around 89 is when I first started using samplers. Early 90s, very vibrant time for music in London. Ton of record shops, just loads of energy. And it's post-rave and people are starting their own labels and the drum and bass and jungle thing is kicking off. And I was just like a slightly disillusioned, you know, youngster because I was really, really into hip hop. But I just kind of felt that the music had stopped speaking to me. Right. You know, I don't know what it was. There was something about the, I think it was when all the kind of gangster rap stuff started coming out. Mm-hmm. I was just like, this is not really me. You know, I don't, I, I'm not really feeling this side of the music. 
And I also want to start creating some of my own contribution to this genre that I love so much. And so it was very kind of, you know, innocent times in that didn't really sonically know what I was doing. But I think it's always really interesting when you kind of decide that you want to do something, but you don't really know any of the official rules because I think that's when the magic happens. I get you. Yeah, absolutely. And so meeting um, Tony, Tony I met in a um, music shop in Shaftesbury Avenue called Turnkey. Um, know it well. You know it well. And Robert I met via an ex-girlfriend who was at uni with her. And, you know, obviously I met James and Honest Johns. And, you know, suddenly we were in a band and we were signed to a label and we were making music. But, but Charlie, there's, there's more to it than that, really, because you're, you're a poet. Right, I was a poet, poet before, the, yeah. And, and, yeah. And a lot of people, I, I, people don't necessarily know your background so much, but from, and I've, I've, yeah, I'm not sure whether it's renditions or speakings or, yeah. or, or, or how, however you phrase that, but it's, it's pretty powerful and it's pretty amazing. It's definitely thought provoking and creative. So I, when you say, Oh, I just decided to make music. I don't, I, I don't, I don't think you're really giving it justice okay. because you were already in that kind of yeah, 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 yeah. creative zone and yeah. Yeah. thinking about life and thinking about the world in in a different way. Yeah, most definitely. So, okay, let me rewind back Please. a bit further. So, I started writing poetry at school just as a way of surviving the school system that I was in, and. Um, when I started getting them to the point where I was getting disillusioned with kind of hip hop, but I still wanted to contribute at that time, it was really hard to be a UK rapper. No one was trying to hear you rap in an English accent, but I thought to myself, you know, I've got something that I want to say. I've got ideas that I want to contribute. And I'd kind of started hearing about this kind of hip hop poetry scene that was happening in New York. So I I worked in a school dinner's kitchen for a summer, washing dishes to save up the money for um, a courier flight to New York. And I literally just landed in New York with an article and enthusiasm and just immersed myself in this kind of new kind of hip-hop poetry scene that was based around the New Rican Poets Cafe and places <laughs> like that. And, you know, went down to some events, met Talib Quilly and Mostef and... Saul Williams and kind of came back to London really super inspired that it was something that could be done. And, you know, I'd already had this little collective called Urban Poet Society that I'd been kind of been playing around with, with my, with a couple of friends and literally came back. And then I went to an event in Covent Garden. I tried to get on the, on the bill for an open mic poetry night and they said no. Right. And I think when people say no to you, when people close doors in your face, it's the best thing that can happen to you because it literally makes gives you the choice of, are you going to do this or are you not? Are you going to let this obstacle stop you moving forward or are you not? And I was just like, right, you won't let me get on your stage. I'm going to start my own event and I'm going to take your event out. <laughs> and that's what I did. I went to that's the Charlie. We know we went back to South London, went to Brixton art gallery. It was just like, look, I want to do this spoken word night that has poets, rappers, musicians, artists. What are you saying? They were like, brilliant. Great. Let's do it. And 
rented the venue. My mum did the food. We photocopied the flyers. And within, you know, a few months, that event had gone from 30 people into being, you know, rammed out inside with 300 people outside who couldn't get in. It was amazing. So that was the first foray. Um, and then, so this is really setting a stage yeah. for who you are now, yeah. right? So Most you've definitely. taken these things, however long ago that was, thirty years ago, yeah, or something like that, and you just elevated it. I've we'll, always we'll, been about collective. We'll, always, we'll get that. We'll get there in a while. But let's hear about the rest of the story. <laughs> okay, so we start doing um, Urban Poet Society in Brixton, and this idea of. You know, as a DJ, you you spend your life kind of bringing different people together in one room. Those are the best type of parties you can play for is when you've got a room full of people from different classes, sexualities, beliefs, all in one roof, all in one room together, united by a common cause. And so the Urban Poets Society thing was just kind of, you know, like a really amazing period of time. Because um, people like A-Side, Kefri, you know, Mud Family, there were so many people who passed through the doors of that night and then went on to do bigger and greater, more influential things. But I've always been among those people. Who just, I just like to create spaces to bring people together. Yeah. Really yeah. always been into that. Well, it seemed at that, that time in, in the 90s had so much creativity going on yes. there in, yeah. in London. And, yeah. But it was quite interesting when you said that, that the, the school system wasn't really working for you. And yeah. Yeah. 90s being black, or of, of similar ages, being yeah. black growing up in this, in this part of the world is, is a different thing than, yeah. than, than it is for kids today. Yeah, most definitely. I, I think... You know, it's funny. I talk to my kids about being chased home by the National Front, mm-hmm. you know, by, you know, skinheads having people, you know, openly shouting racial abuse at you in the streets, you know. And they look at me kind of like, Dad, I can't believe that happened, man. Like, how could you let that happen? And I just, <laughs> I just think that people just, you know, forget that, the UK was a pretty racist place in the 80s. And, and you know, music was definitely something that kind of brought, broke down some of those barriers and brought people together, you know. So, um, so yeah, so I, I think being young, being black, being African, you know, going to the type of school that I went to, really struggling to find my identity, life was hard. It was really super yeah. hard. So, so poetry and music, by the sounds of it, saved gave, me. You, gave you that escape. Yeah, I mean, I went to see pub, I went to see Public Enemy perform at Brixton Academy. I think it was nineteen eighty seven, right. and I, I that, was that on that tour. I saw yeah. them. They played in Hammersmith. Yes, they Hammersmith. Yeah. Was that on the same? Was that on the same it the, year? It was the was... Def Jam tour, and I, it was the Jeff Jam tour. Yeah, yeah I can't sure. remember if they did Hammersmith and Academy in the same year, but they were definitely close, and. I literally walked out of, of Brixton Academy a changed man. I was yeah, just was like, great. right. I was like, okay, I am not, you know, the way that I'm being treated, the way that I'm being spoken to, the opportunities available to me, I'm not having that anymore. I'm not doing it, you know. And I literally came out with a fire that has just not stopped burning. 
Well, Chuck D, I think, did that to a lot of people and his lyrics are still strong. I listened to In Lockdown. It was one of my albums on repeat. It was the first album, actually, which I don't think production-wise is as good as the second album, but uh, lyrically it was it was genius. And I was riding my bike in lockdown listening to that going, oh, my God, yeah, this yeah. Is yeah, yeah. It's kind of, you know, I think... Another one of the things that was really great about that period of time is that a lot of the music that was coming out was edutainment. Mm-hmm. You know, it was these people were really trying to educate you through the music they were making. And um, it was just a really exciting, you know, innovative time. So by the time that the Mo Wax thing had kind of come on, I'd, I'd kind of had a bite of the, of the cherry because Urban Poet Society were getting courted by major labels at the time as well and so i was kind of ready for the next phase but i just didn't know how big this next phase was going to be right and so what happened with uh with with mo wax i mean that like i say that's when we first met when you were on mo wax and i think you what was that first was it heads was that the first album we did we done the heads was a compilation album that they did we done um, contemplating jazz, yeah, and you know I can't remember what we met around the first or second album, but but literally I was in the record shop. I meet this dude. He's like, I'm starting a label. You look like you're into hip hop. Can you make me some records? <laughs> you know, and that was the conversation. I told it's not supposed to be that easy. Is not it? supposed to be that easy. But I think you know that James and I just recognised we're kindred spirits. And yeah. so, you know, by combining forces together, we can make some magic happen. Because again, you know, the thing is, as well as all of the racism that was around, there was also the old school boys club that was very much kind of locked off. It was really hard to get into anything if you were an outsider. Yeah. You know, so I think, but you know, what I think is really good about that period of time is that it gave you this grounding in that, you know, before anyone would give you £5,000, you had to show them what you could do with 50 quid. Right. And so it's, it was a very different climate to now where you have people who won't start an idea unless there's a brand funding it or involved in some way. Whereas back then there was no brand involvement and there was no, no, it was literally, if you want this idea to happen, you have to make it happen yourself. So a real DIY ethos. Very DIY Behind ethos. That's kind of punk really, isn't it? Yeah, very punk. Very punk. And um, so, yeah, so, you know, I literally found myself in the studio a couple of days later making this record. And, you know, and then the, D, you know, the DJing started on a bigger scale. And, you know, I was in that kind of major label. I'm a musician. This is what I do for a living. And, and that gave you the opportunity to travel the world, I guess. Yeah, definitely. We went everywhere. That have box will travel. Had that record box, went everywhere. And did that open your eyes to a, I mean, I don't know. Did you, did you travel a lot as a, as a child? Were you, I did, did travel you... a lot as a child. I did. I was very fortunate to kind of go on a lot of trips as a kid, but definitely with the Moax era, we started going to places that we, you know, going to Australia, for example, on the Beastie Boys tour. It's <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> it was, you know, we're on this, we're on this tour with the Beastie Boys and the, and um, Foo Fighters and, Beck and oh Pavement and, you know, Luscious Jackson. It was like this mad tour. I remember listening on the, on the, on the plane, looking around thinking, yo, man, this is like, 
this is the who's who of rock and roll right now. Lord and you're there. And I'm there, you know, somehow. Somehow we've managed to get ourselves on this on this bill. But lots of travelling, lots of going to obscure places, lots of clearing dance floors, <laughs> lots of playing records that worked in London but didn't work abroad. You know, a learning process. Yeah, I was going to say, that must have taught you so much yeah. about about different cultures, about that that industry. And I should imagine about how to to deal with people in authority. Yeah, most definitely. You know, learning how... I think one of the most important things you can learn as a, as a creative, particularly when you start traveling, is how to handle the food. Interesting. You know, how to handle situations where you're maybe eating something that you wouldn't normally eat at home and how you kind of navigate that without causing offence to people. Just learning how to be a Renaissance man is what I call the, the 90s, that period of time. So when, when, did the, when did that all drop off? I mean, trip, trip hop changed into something else. Yeah, trip hop changed into something else. I would say around 2001, 2002, the bubble burst. I just remember... We'd signed to Sony, we'd recorded the album, and I just had this feeling that the rodeo was about to come to an end. Sade delivered her album late. (laughs) And it just mashed everyone up. And, you know, I think as well is that people don't realise the amount of um, money that was around in the music industry at that time and the amount of money that was being spent. Mm. And I think, you know, just like now, the bubble burst. Well, they were charging fifteen pounds for a CD. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, yeah. There was a lot of money knocking around. Yeah, there was a lot of money knocking around. A lot of people were making money, and um, it's unsustainable. This yeah. is one of the things that I, you know, I say to musicians and creatives: is make sure that the way that you're doing things is sustainable. And if you're in an industry that you know that you know is not sustainable, you have to future-proof yourself. So. For me, you know, lockdown has been made much easier by having a space that I can work from, but also a space that is adaptable. So it can be a radio station one day, it can be a DJ booth the next, it can be a recording studio, it can be a yoga studio, because it's fluid. It was, you know, it was the idea of, let me set a space up that has multiple uses. So Charlie, where have you you got these skills from? You say you didn't get on with the, the British education system so well. Although I know you went to a, I went to a, great, a, yeah. a good school, a yeah. school around the way here, yep. south, south, south East London. Yep. So where did you, where did you pick up such um, an ambition and motivation? I would say... Did that come from your parents yeah, my, or my, family? Or? Yeah, my mum is a very motivated individual. You know, typical African household. A's, very good. B's are okay. C is unacceptable. Right. So immediately that just puts you on high alert, you know, like you have to do well at whatever you do. And then I think for myself, I was the first person who to say, I am making a career for myself in the music industry. I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm not going to go down the kind of traditional educational routes. And when I came out of university, there was this very big battle between myself and my my, you know, my parents around what I was going to do with my life. And so failure was not an option because I had to prove that this decision that I had made was going to work out. So that was one thing. 
the second thing I think was, you know, the school I went to kind of really gave you this grounding that, you know, you can do it if you really put your mind to it. And, mm. and then also coming out of uni at the time that I did and being surrounded by these other people who were kind of making things out of nothing, you know, it's funny now, you know, because I, I was actually thinking about this, that there's a whole generation of kids who they've only ever gone to clubs that are officially clubs. Yeah, they've never yeah. been to a club that was actually a disused warehouse, <laughs> you know, and, mm. you know, or a fish factory or like, you know, in a chicken coop. You know, like they've only yeah. know they only know clubbing and music in its official term. Whereas I kind of came up in that time where it's like, you see that church hall? We're going to transform that into, you know, an Amazon jungle for New Year's Eve. And you'd be yeah. like, yeah, right, of course you are. And then you'd go and there'd be parrots flying around and it would look <laughs> like an Amazon jungle. You'd be like, man, how did you do that? And I think just being uh, um, surrounded by people who were, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who moved to London in the late 80s who had come from like the north of England. And, yeah. You know, and so they just kind of came in as being like, man, this is a playground. Like we can do anything. We can achieve anything here. And that made you start looking at your environment in a different way. You know, you're hanging out with a kid from Yorkshire who's like, oh my God, man, you know, barrier block estate, Brixton, this is amazing. And you're like sitting here, no man, this is a hole. And they'd be like, no man, this is like, this could be a photo shoot. This could be inspiration. This could be this, this could be that. So being around people who were different from me helped raise my levels. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we like to think, growing up in London, that you know London is the centre of the universe, and of course, lots of things are possible to do here. But to have fresh eyes, fresh ears, and, and a fresh mind looking at that space to look at it through a new lens is sometimes incredibly refreshing, isn't it? Most definitely. And then also the thing is, you can be fascinated by a city and never go. And you can be fascinated by, by a, a country and then go and visit. But when you go and you immerse yourself in that place and you start really having conversations with the real people. So I spent a large amount of time in New York in the 90s just kind of hanging out. And what was really interesting is I would go there and they'd be more fascinated by London. You know, I'd go there like, man, this is New York. We're going to wear name belts and shell toes and listen to hip hop 24-7. And oh man, it's going to be amazing. And they just want to ask me about London. And it started yeah. making me think, man, like, this place that I'm really trying to get away from, maybe it's a bit more special than I thought it was because all these American cats want to be here. And so that started giving me this new appreciation for my city and this idea of thinking global, not local. Yeah. And that the actually, you know, there are similarities between people in different places, you know, that can be celebrated and there are differences that can be explored. And what, what's your what's your view of London at the moment, Charlie? How do you perceive London? Wow, feel young man. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think that London right about now is, you know, I'm not going to say that London's dead, but I, I'm definitely going to say that London is in a really interesting place because I think what's happened to London is London has bought into the illusion that it's the centre of the universe. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who still spends a lot of time traveling around the UK, you know, when we were allowed to do that, what I do know is there's some really interesting creative movements 
energy and things happening in places that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Like I was in Bradford um, this time last year doing working on a project and I was like, this place is amazing. You know, it's, there were more luxury cars, billionaires and millionaires in Bradford than anywhere else in the UK. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a really interesting place because you go there and you're just like, man, I've just, you know, it's just like being in Dubai at parts right. of, you know, of Bradford. Um, but also just like the regeneration and, you know, the amount of money that's kind of floating around to, for things to happen. And, um, you know, London, I think at the moment is kind of quite a divided city. Well, you can't afford to live here, right? Well, that's one it's of the so things. It's, it's really expensive to live. It's expensive to get anything done. There are a lot of barriers in London, you know, mm-hmm. which is why I don't do very much work here anymore. I kind of just do things in other places. It's more right, you're not over London, are you? I'm not over London, definitely not. But I kind of, I don't particularly want to grow old in London. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of, I don't want to grow old in London. I think the quality of life is not, is not amazing. And the mentality of the people, I think, is a bit closed-minded now. And I just think, actually, you know, the world is a big place. The UK is a big place. There are lots of places that yeah. you can relocate to, go and hang out, you know, for in a time. It's kind of, you know, I'm far more interested by people who I meet who are not from London than I am when I meet people who are just born and bred London and stayed there all their life. Okay. Well, I'll, 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 I'll give you that. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think one of the issues, Charlie, from, from what I see is, and hopefully, you know, you've got a position on this, is that in London, especially uh, marginalised communities, are, are scared, and younger people are scared to leave their, their environments, that, that they're bound by postcodes and estates, and their world is like a kilometre. It's b- between, their, between their block and their school, and maybe go through a park, but not after a certain time, and they definitely don't, know, don't go down that road. So, so when you're brought up in that kind of environment, you're going to have blinkers on and the world is so tiny for you. So you aren't going to have the the vision that someone who's been brought up running up and down hills or, you know, next to the sea or something like that is yeah. going to have. Yeah, most and definitely. That's, that's a real problem. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things which I will credit to, you know, meeting the Moax crew you know, because basically that really opened up my eyes to actually this idea that you can, there are these places in the world that you may have only read about that seem like they're really far away, but actually they're only a telephone call or a plane ride away. And if you can make it happen, you should go and investigate and hang out. So like Japan, you know, for years it's kind of like Japan, man, it's just this mysterious place and then, you know, you meet the Moax crew and they're like, yeah, we're going, we're going to Tokyo next week. <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, 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 we're going to go to Tokyo. What are you going to do? Oh, we're going to buy trainers and buy records. You, but you don't speak Japanese. Yeah, don't worry about that, man. We'll just work that out when we get there. And then you just go. Next thing you know, you're in, in Japan just hanging out. So um, I, think, um, I think that music is something that definitely broadened my, my, my perception of how big an area I could roam. So it's about having the tools to be able 
to allow you to think on that level, I think. And a lot of, a lot of young people perhaps don't have that. They're not taught that these things are a possibility. And because of that, their lives become quite narrow or I don't know. I'm not, maybe, maybe I haven't got the right words there, but what, and this is, I'm going to transition a little bit here, Charlie is, is, is the, is the movement and the running and, and, and the skipping and the swimming and the cycling and the yoga that you do is in some way I feel connected. And, and I, and I tell you what, I think your story about, about, about running has, has been told a lot, but what, what I was really interested in is, and I've, I've remember you when you set run them crew up and you said, Oh, Phil, come down, come down. And I always said, yeah, well about that running thing. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. Maybe see what I'm doing on Wednesday or Thursday or Tuesday or whatever it is. And it didn't really happen until the one day that I, I went with you and I've been an on and off runner for a lot of my life, not necessarily on roads, but off-road. And I came down to the first run, run demo I came to was in Brixton. I think that's just because it's around the corner from me. And I was blown away, Charlie. <laughs> Thank you, like, What have I been missing? <laughs> it was like it was like a running church or something. Yeah, like that. right. It was, yeah. it was an epiphany to me. And what that what that did is, is it showed me running in a in a different way, but also showed me this fantastic community that you that you had built. The people who loved each other and loved the fact that they could go running with each other. And in fact, what I got is that running wasn't even that was secondary to it, to me. It was it was the fact that we were moving through the city as a group of people sharing stories. Yes, we were doing exercise. Yes, you know, people wanted to get a, a good time. But that that wasn't that wasn't the aim of it at all. And I remember you saying, no one's allowed to put headphones on. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah. not the game here. Yeah. You, know, you can listen to your music on the number three bus back home <laughs> yeah. if you want to do that. But here we're here for each each other. And that's when you when you say you're when you said earlier on when you you're doing um the the urban poet society or when when you were doing uh gigs or music events you your aim is to get people together to connect people and and running i guess is just one of the ways that you've been able to do that yeah i just i just realized kind of around 2006 2007 and I've said this in, you know, in a couple of interviews and people don't really kind of understand it when I talk about the breakup of the music industry and the breakup of the creative industries because of advancements in technology. Okay. Facebook had a devastating impact on bringing people together. Because, True that. because actually, I remember being in Philadelphia. I was at King Brit's house. This is like... 2001 2002 and he was telling me about this site called friendster and he was like yeah. you know this is really cool thing where you can kind of keep in touch with your friends and a lot of the american djs were using friendster to kind of keep in contact with each other 
And I remember coming back and kind of trying to get people into it and, and no one was really, really kind of that excited by this idea of talking to their friends on a computer keyboard. And then, but when Facebook kind of really landed and took off, it also coincided with the rise of CDs and the kind of implication of powerful laptops. And powerful laptops meant that studios, you didn't have to go to the studio anymore. And suddenly it was like the way that people made music all started to change. And then people started becoming successful at what they were doing. So suddenly you've got this situation where, you know, you're being paid astronomical money to play other people's music and you're flying all around the world. And suddenly this lovely scene where it was kind of, oh, well, I'll just see you in Black Market Records on Saturday. That was not a thing anymore. And so Run Them was my attempt to kind of bring people back together. And also the fact that by that time, that was the kind of the first wave of the creative deaths that I call it, where people that you'd grown up with were passing away. They were getting sick, you know, people were getting cancer, people were getting, you know, there was a whole load of health issues that started occurring in people that you, that you knew these weren't, this wasn't like, Oh yeah, Stevie Wonder's sick. This was like, Oh man, this is my man that I know. Like we went to school together. We grown up together. We raved together and now they really need help. And so run them was like, it wasn't about me saying I want to create something so that I can have a brand relationship. It really was the fact of my friends are not in a good way. I need to do something to help them. And, 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 and what I immediately realized from the very beginning is if I try to take running to my friends and my community in the way that it was currently being marketed, it wouldn't work. So my thing was like, I'm just to ignore what the running world is doing and I'm going to just borrow from skateboarding, yeah. borrow from gaming culture, borrow from club culture, borrow from every culture that I can aside from running. Because I find running is, you know, the way that people talk about running and the way that running's marketed and promoted, it's a bit old school still. And I think that, you know, the problem with it is it just alienates so many people who could really benefit from what running can bring into their life. And that's what I tried to do with Run Them. I was just like, running is amazing. It can change your life. It can help solve a lot of the issues that a lot of people are having, particularly young people. And I can't understand why they're being ignored or alienated from this culture. What is it? And so, you know, let me just start my thing. And where's, where's that gone? Because it's, how long have you had it for? A decade almost. It's 13 years now. 13 years. Wow. And that, that makes me look like an idiot. <laughs> no, not at all. I didn't, that I didn't take your opportunities early on you know, to, to come running with you. It's, it really does. It's funny because a lot of people say that who come now or who know about it now. And I always say to people, it's kind of, you will get many teachers in your life and it's not every teacher that you meet who is the one that kind of, you know, reveals the information that you need. And so with Run Them, I'm like, people just, you, you just come to Run Them when you're ready. And it's okay that the party's been going on for X amount of years and you've only just found it. That's cool. Because the thing about Run Them is, regardless of whether you've been in the crew for 13 years or you've been in it for day one, you get treated the same, you're crew. 
Yeah. You know, and I've been really, really trying to make sure that when people come through the door, ego is left at the door and, you know, it's not about, you know, how long you've been running, how fast you can go, what you do, what job you do, where you live, how much money you've got in the bank, what car you drive, who you're sleeping with. None of, it's all irrelevant. All that's important is that you come through, you treat yourself with respect, you treat other people with respect and we have a good time. What I, what I really love as well, Charlie, is what you've done is, is what your youngest crew yeah, yeah. Have, have maybe could have gone down a different path yes. that you've actually allowed to flourish yes. through, through running and through the people that they've met in your group. Yeah. yeah, that's been really important for me because I work with young people and there are things that happen in young people's lives that as adults, you know, if you don't come from that world, you're just like, <clears throat> what do you mean you live on Peckham High Street but you can't go to Peckham Rice Station, mm. you know. And until you are working with kids who are landlocked by postcodes and culture, you're just like, it's alien to you, you know, because you know, there's, not, there's not really many places in London. No, I mean, I live in East London, which I never thought I'd live in East London, you know, as a kid <laughs> growing up in South. Like, you know, East London for me was just national front and racist. Yeah. You know, I'm now in the heart of East London. But um, I just, you know, I, I just taught this group of kids who they lived in Lewisham. They'd never been to Oxford Street and they were 15. And I was just like, well, yo, man, like, what do you mean? And they were just like, we, could, we just can't go. We don't want to go. We, we don't mean we don't feel safe going up uptown. And so um, with the youngest thing, my thing is what I, you know, the one thing I haven't spoken about in this conversation is my mentors. I've, had, I've been blessed with having mentors all, out, all throughout my life. And what I realize is as a young person, when you have someone mentoring you, when you have someone in your corner who's going to devote, donate time and energy towards you, amazing things can happen. You know, I wouldn't have achieved what I've achieved if I didn't have older people in my life being like, okay, Charlie, maybe you don't want to go left today. Maybe you want to go right. You know, maybe you want to go straight forward. No, even meeting you guys, you know, you when you were doing Bored Stupid and, you know, I'm meeting this black dude. He's like, you know, snowboarding is a thing and you are allowed to do it and it's pretty cool. And yeah, you're going to go and, you know, you're going to fall off the lift and people are going to laugh at you. And eventually they're just going to accept you as being, yeah, you come and try it. That was a really, you know, a really big thing for me. Um, so yeah, so I just like to provide opportunities for young people, you know, because I think life is hard. I think it's hard to be a young person now and it's particularly hard now. And I think a lot of adults don't understand how hard it is now because they didn't grow up with the with social media. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a big issue, isn't it? You know, Trying to get my, my son off it. Yeah. I mean, it's all day, every day, all day, every day, but it's this thing that they've grown up with. And partly I know it's, you know, I mean, I know my daughter used to play with my mobile phone when she was a baby. You know, I know that definitely when she was a kid, she would spend time looking at the iPad it's no surprise now that as a 16-year-old, she just wants to be on her phone 24-7. Yeah. You know? so, um... so one of the things we've been trying to do, Charlie, is, is to try and break that to some degree to get people, and I think the city's got a lot to answer for in, in, in those terms, especially if you're, you're brought up in Peckham and, and you've never been to Peckham Rye Station or you can't go there or you've never been to Oxford Street. 
And how how do we get people to actually appreciate what and you and you have spoken beautifully about the, the 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 benefits of the rest of the country? How do we get people when they can't go down the road? How do we get them into the outdoors? How how do we move forward to try and give young people this generation? How do we get them off their phones and enable them? to believe that there's a place for them in the outdoors. Well, one of the things is you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. And so one of the problems that you have, particularly with a lot of the outdoor brands, is either they don't have young people or people of colour, you know, in their ads, wearing their products, or they do, but they'll just be like, okay, so we're going to get this kid, you know, and we're going to put him in the, you know, in the Arctic puffer jacket, but we're going to take a picture of him in the state in Brixton. And so you just kind of get locked into this thing, you know, because the funny thing is, if you've grown up with hip hop in your life, you've probably got a large amount of Gore-Tex in your wardrobe that you've right. never, ever worn outside of a club. It's crazy. Like I've got, the, I've got the Himalayan North Face jacket. I've got that. I've got, you know, untold Gore-Tex jackets in my, you know, in my wardrobe. I haven't worn a lot of them outdoors in the conditions that they were designed for, but they look good in the photo shoot. So I think one of the things that you can do is you need to kind of start creating these initiatives where people, you know, young people can go out and be in these environments in a safe environment. How do we get people, young people, regardless yeah. of, regardless of color, I guess. Yeah. Um, out of the confines of the city, and you were talking about Gore-Tex jackets, and yeah. <laughs> standing outside clubs, and yeah. the, that kind of stuff. Yeah, which is I'm, all good. Well, I was I was just saying that you know, as someone has who has grown up with hip hop culture, I have a large amount of Gore-Tex in my wardrobe that has never been worn for any of the you know the elements it was designed for. <laughs> yeah. I've worn them, you know, a heavy Himalayan jackets, kind of sweating in the club, but never actually <laughs> worn it on the top of a mountain. Yeah, you um, look good though, didn't you? I look good, man. Look really good. I think, you know, I think one of the things is about creating safe spaces for people to um, to explore these areas, you know, and and creating opportunities for young people to go and explore these places, you know. It's weird, you know, obviously, I, you know, I was a Cub Scout. So, you know, when I was a Cub, you know, I was a Cub Scout, I was a Scout, I was an Army cadet. You know, there was this real push kind of get inner city kids out of the, the inner city into the countryside for them to experience. I think that's one of the, you know, that doesn't happen so often now. Um, but I think it's down to the brands, I think, in the way that they photograph and promote you know their products because a lot of times what you have is like it's the kids from urban environment photographed wearing you know outdoor workwear but in an urban environment as opposed to being yeah. let me take this group of kids and actually immerse you know teach them how to do bushcraft and lighting fires and so on and so forth actually in the environment that the clothes are designed for i think, I think we have, yeah for sure so I, we think, carry on. I think people like flock together which is the kind of bird watching group, which if you don't know about, they are amazing. It's kind of, um, 
this bird watching group that's been set up by Ollie Danger, um, who's a kind of black ad um, creative, and you know that's been really amazing the way that they've they've done that. And I was I was actually out with those guys last weekend. Oh no way! Yeah, we went Wicked. up to went up to Box Hill, and Wicked. I've got to say it's one of the most powerful experiences that, yeah. that I've had. You know, yeah. thirty or forty yeah. people of color, yeah, with with binoculars, yeah, around, around <laughs> yeah. Didn't didn't think I'd ever see that. I didn't. Walk, yeah. Walking around Box Hill, looking yeah. super fly, yeah. What looking at birds, and and I think it's almost. And I'm gonna, it reminded me of almost run them is that is that is that the bird watching was almost an excuse to get outside and go and explore the countryside because truth be told, I didn't see many birds, yeah, 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 yeah. Many birds, but everyone had a massive smile on their face. And when we did see a kite yeah. or a stork or you know, whatever, whatever other bird it was. There was real, genuine excitement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and energy around yeah. that. And and the, the issue that I had was what was stopping these people going out to going to the outdoors without having bird watching as as the excuse almost. It was almost as if they needed that to feel as though to legitimize themselves of to be in that space. Which is which is incredibly sad. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the thing is about we've all had, you know, you probably had that situation where you're in the countryside and you walk into the pub and then everyone turns around and it of goes course. silent and they all look at you. You know, some people, you know, like myself, if you, you know, you've kind of grown up with it, so you're kind of used to it by now. So you're just mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, cool, everyone's looking at me, brilliant, great, all right, I'm ready for we go. But for some people, it's a very big barrier, and you know, I think organisations like you know flock together. You know, just people who are doing different things, you know, what you guys are doing. Yeah. They're really important. And I think that often what happens with people of colour is we sit around waiting for someone else to make the situation better for us, as opposed to saying, you know what, I'm tired of waiting, I'm just going to do it myself. Yeah. Because the thing that people don't realise is, that as a person of colour, when you get into anything that you don't generally see your people at, you have to excel, you know. So what's really funny, I saw this article where they were talking about Flock Together and they described it as an urban bird-watching club. And actually, I just see it as it's a bird-watching club because I yeah. know that you can go to individuals there and they can tell you, it's not like it's a group of people who are just dressing up to look good and do something cool. It's actually people with, with genuine knowledge of the subject that they are getting into and, yep. and genuine thirst for knowledge. Cause you know, as a person of color, when you get into something where you're the alien, you, you can't afford to kind of half step. Yeah. You know, so, um, and for me, I think it's kind of, when I look at the outdoors, I just think it's kind of, there's a lot of short sightedness from the people who can make change. One, they don't think there's a problem. Because it's just like, oh, it's the outdoors. Anyone can come. No, they can't. No, they can't. Stop, <laughs> stop telling people that anyone can come because no, they can't. And, and secondly, there's this idea that, oh, we could just continue on with the people that we've got and our industry will be sustained. This is what's really interesting about this year. There are loads of people 
who actually haven't been very inclusive in their approach to life, their approach to business, and now they're getting burnt. You're seeing it, right? They're seeing it, you know? And that fake community that they've been talking about that wasn't really a community, well, now you realise you don't really have a community. Or you have that thing where you suddenly realise, you know, the demographic of people that I've been kind of marketing to is now getting older. They don't want to spend money. They don't want to go out. So who do I turn to next? And, you know, and so I actually am kind of, uh, this is the reason why we've run them. I've always been, it has to be an inclusive group for all. That's the way that you survive and thrive. It's it's interesting that you talk about the, the, the brands and the organizations now. It's almost it's it's like they're scrambling that they've been yeah, called, called napping yeah. to a certain degree. Do you think I it feels as though something's starting to change, but personally I feel a little bit suspicious that it's it's short term. Yeah, of course it's, it's not it, listen. Hand on heart, I can say, because, I've, you know, you and I, you, you know, we have the private conversations with the people that no one ever knows that we had the conversation with them. Yeah. So we know what's really going down. And you and I both know that the BLM movement freaked a lot of companies out and they, you know, they were reactive in the way that they responded. And now they're realizing that being reactive is not enough. And they're actually realizing that this is a much bigger problem that they, than they thought it would be. And they've ignored it for so long that it's so much harder to actually solve. Yeah. It's and not going away this time. It's either, not it? going away. And there are loads of people who, you know, I call it the phase one and phase two of the burning. There were, you know, there were obvious people who kind of people went after in, in phase one. You need to do better. You know, you did this to me in this year. You need to fix up, blah, 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 blah. But there are so many more stories that are about to come out, yeah. particularly the longer that this goes on and the more empowered that the general person in the street feels where they're just actually like, you know what? I'm not taking this. I'm actually not going to take it. I'm not going to be spoken to like this. I'm not going to be treated like this. And I'm actually tired of keeping my mouth closed. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that, that in, in some day in the future, this isn't going to be a conversation we're going to have. And it depends if you're a brand or an organisation, where do you want to be when that conversation is finished? What side of the fence are you going to yeah. be sitting on yeah, definitely. When, when, when that happens? I mean, I just, you know, for myself personally, I'm just like, there are certain organisations that I refuse to speak to anymore. I refuse to speak to you. I'm not engaging with you. I'm not doing it. So that you know, that you know, what you've done so far is tokenistic. And until you do something of substance, I don't engage with you. you know? how, co- how confident are you that we're going to see something tangible and real in the near future? If we look at, if we look at running, for example, if, if you look at, you know, we, we run black trail runners. So obviously trail, trail running is, is an important part of our life. And we see, we see lots of, I say lots of, a, f- a few, a couple of uh, people being invited onto podcasts where they weren't invited on before. We see people getting covers and and spreads that we didn't see 
before. And it seems, you know, it, which is great and it's fantastic and big up to everyone involved in that. Is, is, do you get a sense that this will continue or a sense that it's just, you know, they're just filling some holes for the time being? They're filling holes for the time being because the, the, the changes that really need to be made, people are not prepared to make those changes. And what are those changes, Charlie? We need more people in the boardrooms. We need more people holding the budget. We need more people who are involved in the making the actual making of the decisions. Yeah, great. You can get me on your podcast. That's cool. But whilst I'm on your podcast, the CEO of your company is basically playing golf and telling me all lives matter. So the problem that we have is with a lot of the changes that we need to see happen, they're not happening from top down. They're happening by individuals within these organisations who don't really have power, but know that they need to bring some change. So a very, a very simple one is, okay, listen, let's, you know, we've got this podcast series, let's get some people of colour or some people who have, we haven't really spoken to before on. Brilliant. That's great. But the decisions for the company are still made in the boardroom. So if we're not in the boardroom, then nothing changes. And, you know, and that's my, my hand on heart, you know, problem with the running industry is that it likes to do token gestures because ultimately it doesn't think it has a problem. Yeah. And the people who know it, you know, who know that there's a problem don't really have power. And the people at the top who do have the power think that they can just continue onwards and basically everything will be okay and eventually it will all settle down. So it's interesting. When I started Run Them Crew, young people didn't run, but they were getting into running. And, you know, organizations like myself and the various other crews, you know, we've worked very hard on in encouraging more young people to take up running. But when you go to a bike storms event, yeah, and there's 8,000 young people on bikes you suddenly realise what the problem is. It's actually young people aren't running anymore. Why? Because they don't feel welcome. Because it doesn't matter what organisations like myself, you know, what Run Them does, what Trap Mafia does, what Flag like we could, you know, We are pushing a very heavy stone up a very large hill. Whereas in the bike storms world, you know, you've got companies that are like, yo, kids are riding bikes and we can make some money off the fact that young people are riding bikes. So let's get involved and let's start, in, you know, let's, let's, let's really get involved. Most of the brands don't really want to get involved on the grassroots level for there to bring change. Classic example is these big city marathons. How many young people get the opportunity to run the marathon in their city? They don't. Yeah. They don't get the chance. You know, if I look at something like Hackney Half Marathon, for example, Yes, there are young people that run it, but not in the, not in the numbers that should be because ultimately that means that someone's going to lose money somewhere. I mean, Charlie, I'd, I'd, I'd go even further. I'd say even where there isn't money involved, if you look at something like Park Run, for example, where it is a local park, I mean, the, the demographic there is, 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 is pretty white and pretty middle class. And, that's what's being reflected in the media. Yeah, 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 exactly. 
Exactly. You know, I just think it's kind of, I've been doing this for 13 years. So I'm just kind of, you know, I can speak from a place of experience. And also I get to sit in, in those high level conversations, you know, where changes, you know, where we try and bring change. And I can say it's a real uphill battle, real uphill battle. And it's a battle which I'm actually, I'm just like, you know, it's interesting that you think about, you know, even if you look at the BLM movement, a lot of people have stopped running and started riding bikes. If you look globally around the world, you look what's happening in LA, you look what's happening in New York, in Atlanta. It's like, where are, what are people of colour doing in, in groups now? They're riding together. They're not running together. They're riding together. And why is that? You know, you know and so... This is the, you know, this is what I say, because ultimately, you know, a lot, you can go on the podcast, you can speak to magazines, you can do the interviews, you can have the brand level meetings, but a lot of times what happens is when you talk about what is really, really happening on the street level and why people are not running, people just look at you with like blank faces because they don't really get it. Well, does it not then need someone like you, Charlie, to step up? into the boardroom and, or let's flip it the other way for, for brands, some of the big running brands to, to take you on yeah. and pay you lots of money to fix it. <laughs> no, because I never... if, you're, if you're listening, pay this man lots of money. <laughs> you know, obviously I work as a, you know, I've been a brand ambassador for various different sports brands you yeah. know, over the years. And, you know, I'm with Lululemon now. I have a great relationship with them. You know, we are doing, what we can to bring change within the company. But I just think that actually, you know, when I look, for example, at the time that I spent with um, the second brand that I was at, yeah, you know, big running, big running brand, mm-hmm. is actually, it's kind of people, I'm a disruptor, you know, I'm a maverick. I'm the person that when everyone says go left, I'm like, no, well, it's, what happens if we go right? When you're in those big brands, you know, the traditional kind of big running brands, they don't want disruptors because ultimately you've got a new person coming in and they've got new ideas, which are so radically different from the way that things have been done for so many years that immediately you start butting heads. You know, that's the reason why I'm not at a running brand now because I can be more effective, you know, at a non-running brand than I can be with, with you know, with a, with a running brand at the moment. Okay. You know, so, and it's not, you know, and it's not about, again, what I'm, what I'm saying to people, it, it's kind of this, you know, what I, one of the big things that would happen to me when I was working with, particularly with running brands is like you would do some great work in one department and then another department was going to undo that work with what they were doing. So that's, yeah, big business happens yeah. like that, doesn't so, it? So, you know, you take two steps forward and then one step back, you know. And so, ultimately, what I think, it's not about a big brand paying someone loads of money to basically revolutionise what they do. It's about people realising we don't need the big brands, you know. We don't need permission from, you know, it's like Flock Together, for example, they yeah. could have been sitting there being like, okay, well, you know, once we get our sponsorship from blah, 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 then we can go and start doing what we can do. Or they could just be like, you know what? We're going to go bird watching. 
brilliant. When are we going? Sunday. What time? This time. Okay. <laughs> you got binoculars? No, I haven't got any. Where are we going to get some from? Cash converters. Okay, let's go cash converters. Let's get some cheap binoculars and let's go. And then it just happens. Mm. So it's a shift in attitude. There are too many people now who will not move an inch unless there is brand support because brand support for them means that the idea is legit. My thing is do as much as you can before the brands are involved because that's when it's really legit. Yeah. That's when you're showing the world what you can do without any help. Amazing. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, that, you know, that's my thing. But as I said, you know, the thing about running, you know, is running at some point is going to really have to start having a look at itself because ultimately when kids get on a bike, they're not thinking, Oh, I'm on a bike because I want to go and do tour de France. They're just like, oh, I'm on a bike because it's a form of transportation. that gets me from A to B. A lot of people still look at running as, well, I run because I'm training for a race. Performance. Performance. But now performance has been stripped away because we've got no races. You know, we've got no races to look forward to. Which begs the question, why are people running? Well, I hope that people are running now because it's because they know that it's good for them. Yeah. You know, um, you know, like Mar- Marcus, Marathon Marcus, for example, is someone I've seen go from, you know, four and a half hour marathon runner to, to running sub three. Sub three, big up Marcus. Big up Marcus, you know, and he's had a couple of attempts at getting that sub three and he's worked really hard. And obviously from someone like Marcus, performance is important. But I'm sure a huge element of it is he does it because he enjoys it and it's fun, you know, and it makes him feel good and valued and, you know, it's something to work towards and it's inspiring for his kids and the people around him and so on and so forth. Running doesn't really talk about running in that sense still. It still talks about in in this idea of performance and distance being the barometer. So even if you look at the TV coverage, it's still very much about, okay, these guys are on for the world record. Oh, it was raining. Oh, they didn't get the world record. Oh, okay. Not actually the fact of like, even at an elite level, you know, yes, you're running for the prize money, but there, there must be a sense of enjoyment that comes from doing it. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Do you think that some of these apps like Strava, other other apps are available, of course, mm. have got a part to play in that shift in attitude about why people run? Definitely. Definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I remember reading this thing, I think it was from Daley Thompson, or is one of the old school athletes. Legends, legends. You know, and they were saying that in their day, you didn't want anyone to know how much mileage you were doing or where you were running or how you were training. But that's yeah. now like a become a thing. It's almost like, well, if unless you're sharing how far you went and how fast you went and where you did it, then it didn't happen. And I think there definitely is a responsibility, you know, from the the data collecting apps to understand the impact that that can have on fragile minds. Yeah. As someone who runs a crew, I actively see what happens when people get data hungry, when every run is about data. And, you know, suddenly you've got people who are kind of, they're injured, but they're running because someone in some other place who they don't even know has just posted their stats. And so now they have to get out there. You know, there's a lot of competition that comes from it, and you know, which is good. You know, it's good for, you know, for some people. But I just think that actually, you know, there has to be a bit of balance and a bit more kind of this idea of 
the mindful runner has to start coming in. But again, you know, it's already coming in. You know, this is the the thing. I'm uh, my thing will always be if if there is a hole, if I feel like I'm not being served by something, or I see there's a hole to be filled, I just go and start my own thing. You know, I would just go and start my own thing. And so I get a lot of people who come to me like, "Oh, I'd really like to start running, but I don't have a watch." I'm like, "You don't have, you don't need a watch." And they'd be like, oh, "I'd really like to start running, but I don't have the right trainers." I'm like, "You don't need the right trainers." You know, just. You know, or like, I really like to start running, but I can't run. Like, go out and do a walk. Eventually, the running will come. We, well, one, we, one, sorry, Charlie. One, I was going to say, one of the great things, that, and, and it's the way that I've really taken, uh, uh, found my love of running, is, is with trail running. The, the, the fact that you, you, can put, you can put a watch on when you're, when you're trail running, but really there's probably a log in the way or it's probably going to be muddy or the tide, the tide's in. So you can't do that route anyway. And actually you're in nature, you're smelling the, the earth, you're seeing animals and you know, the world, the world is a beautiful place and it does away with all of that digital technology that, that you're talking about that adds additional stresses because some of the, some of the times when you're running, it can, it can be physically tough anyway. Do you want more stresses involved in that process? Or like you say, do you want to enjoy yourself? Because ultimately people will do it because they want to enjoy themselves. That's the real reason we get out of bed and go, go for a 10 K in the morning. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it should be allowed for people to say that I'm not running because I'm training for an event. And I'm just running because I actually enjoy it. You know? Yeah. It's kind of, um, yeah, I think, you know, so I think there's some free reframing around how, you know, you know, running, how running is done, I think is a conversation that needs to start happening. But I long, you know, I've long since given up with the waiting for, you know, the industry to catch up with, you know, my ideas. How I might, you know, I mind things because, you know, people have to understand is like now it's quite common to see people running in groups and every brand has got some version of a crew. And it's it's kind of the idea of the collective running community is something that people talk about. But for a long time when I was doing Run Them, you know, it was like, why are you running together in the group? It was just kind of this question that was asked of us. You know, I was walking down Oxford Street and a 100 of you rolled past me. Like, why would you do that? You know, well, you, you, you you pretty much set that up globally, didn't you? As far as that crew phenomena is concerned, I, I mean, you're probably I'm, quite humble about it. But. I'm saying I'm, I'm one of the one of the six group different groups that basically, um, <laughs> you know, that that basically kind of kicked things off. Yeah, you know, because, Charlie, but, yeah. Go on. Well, no, you know, the things what I always say to people is kind of whenever you start something, there's always someone somewhere else doing it. You know, yeah. at the same time, you know, so. So yeah, there's a lot of people who who who, who you know who who should get the credit for it. You know, even like some of the more progressive running clubs that were kind of, you know, doing things before we'd even, you know, even started. So um but we definitely helped take running from a solitary thing that you did by yourself to something that you did as a group. Yeah. You know what I mean? One 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 other thing that I just want to touch on before yeah. before we wrap up, Charlie, is is how you discovered yoga 
out of apparently nowhere yep. to become someone who travels the world teaching yoga. So how did you discover it? And, and then secondly, how does that fit in with running your life, the pressures of doing all these hundred things that you do every single day? I basically got injured. I ran hood to coast, right. um, which is like a, I think it's a 195 mile team relay race um, in America, which I did. Um, and I got really badly injured on that run. And it got to the point where, you know, I'd go for runs and I couldn't actually walk afterwards. So part of my rehab um, you know, re- yoga was recommended to me as a way of kind of, you know, helping me understand my my body a bit more, be a bit more kinder to my body. Um, and I I met a yoga teacher who kind of was an ex DJ, and yes. he basically started breaking it down to me in a language that was understandable to me. It's and important. It's really important that you have translators who can translate, you know, weird ideas into a language you can understand. But I just fell in love with 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 yoga and and the the people I was meeting in the yoga world as well. And it, again, the thing for running for me, running is like a job now. DJing is like a job. A lot of times, my passions become jobs. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, yoga was just like this little secret thing that I could do, and it was <laughs> it was a bit weird. And you know, I like walking into a room where people don't know who I am. Right. Who are not like, oh, that's Charlie Dark DJ or Charlie Dark Running Crew. They're just like, I would ask the guy who can't touch his toes. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> a, you know what I mean? Who's a bit stiff that keeps falling out of poses. Like, and, and, and I really like that. And then I, you know, I literally had that epiphany one day where I looked around and I was just like, I'm having a really amazing time. Everyone here is having an amazing time, but the people who really could benefit from this most are not in the room. Why are they not in the room? Okay, yeah. for a lot of the similar reasons why people weren't running when I first started. So what do I do? I just went and retrained to be a yoga teacher. Just like, okay, cool. Let's go and let's go and basically immerse ourselves in yoga. Let's retrain to become a yoga teacher. And then let's start taking yoga to the people who actually need it most. I'm not going to wait for the industry to wake up to realize that there's a problem. I'm just going to start doing what I can in my own small way. Yeah. No, no one was expecting that, Charlie. No one was expecting I still see my friends now. And they see me in the street and they are laughing. They're like, hilarious. They think it's hilarious. Like, you dress up in lycra. You do yoga. But again, this is what I always say to people. is kind of wellness, being in the outdoors, you know, looking into kind of like alternative medicine has always been at the heart of communities of color. But it's something that we've kind of been told over the years, oh, that's not really for you. And suddenly things that we kind of, you know, my, you know, you probably had it, you know, in my, my house, my mum was always making some weird form of cold concoction to drive the cold <laughs> away, you know, and sort of scrub, rubbing some special rub on yeah. your, like your body. You just think these people are weird. Oh, actually now years later, you realize they were doing wellness, but they just wasn't called wellness. It was just yeah. called culture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just called culture. So yeah, yoga, I, you know, yoga, meditation, all of that jazz. I just recommend to people because it, I know for a fact that it helps me deal with being a black man growing up in the UK. 
growing up and maintaining in the UK because every day there's some form of challenge. That of course. But because I have these tools that I can draw upon, that in- invariably this make me a bit less reactive. Just a bit like, I'm just a bit like, oh, you know what? Cool. Oh, okay, fine. I'm not going to yeah. react. Whereas, you know, as a teenager, I was angry. Listening to Public Enemy, walking around with a berry on my head, copy of Malcolm X, just being angry. You know, there's yeah. many different ways that you can tackle the problems that we face. So it's really allowed you to to reflect on the world in a different way. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, look, I'm a Star Wars nut. Love yeah. Star Wars. You know, seen every film multiple times. Collect the toys. I'm deep in the game. <laughs> For me, yoga, meditation, the ability to run, the ability to be outdoors, that's the closest to being a Jedi wow. that I will ever get. And again, it sounds weird, but when I had that epiphany, I was just like, yo, this is like being a Jedi. You know, this ability to be able to sit down, you know, cross my legs or just sit down and have a calm five minutes where I shut the world out. This ability to breathe before, breathe and think before I react. You know, this idea that I can learn how to defend myself, you know, by just learning how the body, the joints of the body move. Yo, you know what? This is Jedi training. Let's, you know what I mean? Let me immerse myself in this. Charlie Dark, when are you getting your MBE? <laughs> you know, your OBE? You know, I would love, I would, you know, it's been on my mission because I think, you know, it would make my mum immensely proud. I don't think it's going to happen because I just don't think I'm conventional enough. Because I think that the awards like that are, are presented to people like ourselves who act, speak, walk and talk the talk in a certain way. And I just don't think it's going to happen. But I'm, you know, I feel like I've done enough stuff that at least on my 100th birthday, people were saying, you know what, he, 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 he did what he could to help as many people as he could and make other people's lives better. And that is, my, you know, I mean, that I'm, I'm happy with. I could deal with that. Charlie, as always, it has been a learning experience. No, oh, thank it you, is, man. It has been a pleasure speaking to you, uh, dropping knowledge left, right, and centre. Uh, if people want to know a little bit more about what you're up to, for example, we've even touched on it. Um, Elephant Sounds, One Dem Radio, operating. It's about to kick off any minute now. If people want to know what you're up to. How do they get hold of you? Where do they look for you? Best place to find me is Daddy Dark RDC on Instagram or run.dem.crew. Instagram is where I hang out. Charlie, be safe. Nice one, man. So for the A to Z of running, we're going to start with C's. We've had a lot of great choices, so we're looking forward to going through those with you. I just want to say thanks to our Black Trail Runners Facebook community members because... You know, when we're thinking of these, uh, the words to go with the letters for each week, we put it out there to the Facebook community and we had a lot of suggestions for C, didn't we? Yeah, it was really great to sort of see and uh, <laughs> didn't mean to say that actually, let's see how it works. <laughs> <laughs> it was great to see. See, yeah. I wish I implied that, but I wasn't clever enough to do it, but it sort of <laughs> happened by chance. <laughs> So what's the first one? What are we going to talk about the first one? 
coping mechanisms. Aha. So I guess that's for races, really. So do you want to start with this one? Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say it's for races, but I, you know what? I, I very much believe if you practice everything when you're training, nothing is a surprise when it comes to race day. So I've had some of my highest and lowest points happen when I'm actually training. So when I'm out there on the trails, week to week, on my own, you know, coach has given me a specific session to do. And I've, you know, I believe I can't do it. You know, I look at what I've got to do and I'm like, how the hell am I going to manage doing that hill reps or, and I think that, I think for me, I always go back to where I was and where I am now. You know, that's one of the one of the ways that I cope in terms of thinking, well, three years ago, I didn't think I could do that race or I didn't think I d- could go this kind of speed or I didn't think I could run up that, that ascent of hill um, or I didn't think I could run up to the top of that peak. Um, and I remind myself about the things in my past trail running experience that I never believed I could do which I did so that gives me a a mental coping mechanism to at least have a go at the things that seem unachievable does that make sense yeah so give yourself a chance why not yeah yeah because what have you got to lose you know what have you got to lose if you if you're going out to to do a trail run and you're just out on a run and you you know you're going up a a climb you know, why not challenge yourself and see how quickly up it you can go? Because, you know, you're not, nobody's going to laugh. You know, the only person there is normally you or you and a friend or you and a couple of friends. And, you know, friends. Think, uh, friends. <laughs> um, in a bubble. In a bubble, in a bubble, in your social distance bubble. But if you don't try, how will you ever know? And I think yeah. that that, when you can prove to yourself that, you know, oh, I tried that and actually I did a lot better than I thought I would, when it comes to trying something that's maybe a little bit harder, you have that experience in your head of having done it and knowing that you can kind of almost put yourself in that situation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like if you've done it in training or in life, you can draw back to that experience. Yeah. 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 You know, when things get you know, talking about trail running, whether you're running 5k on the trails or 10k or 50k, there will be times, you know, I'm talking to a lot of the athletes that I coach about this at the moment, especially the female athletes, where from a hormonal point of view, you'll go out on a run and and guys feel this too. And you're just like, I'm not doing anything differently than I did last week, but I feel horrendous. I can't breathe. I don't, my legs feel like lead. And, you know, we've both been through some personal stuff this week. And it's not just physical stuff that impacts our running. It's the mental stuff as well. And so therefore, you know, it's important to have coping mechanisms or to have taken advice when you're feeling like that. Why is it that I feel like this? Maybe I should speak to a friend and ask them if they felt like this on a run. Because I think if you don't have the coping mechanisms, mental or physical, in order to pull yourself out of that, you can leave a run thinking, I'm not going to do that again. You know? Yeah. I think it's only points there that you touched on. I think you've got to be, to run, I mean, you're not always going to be happy, but I think to run well and for a long time, you need to, have some joy in it so you can't mm. run unhappy for a long period of time mm. and like if you've got things happen in your life that are in, what will impact it you can't run away from those things so i think you just have to deal with that reduce the training 
not train, speak to your coach mm. and just be open with that rather than trying to force things through. And I actually should really take my own advice because this has happened to me last year. I had a situation that happened and I was kind of forced through training, but my head wasn't in it. So I couldn't really give what the sessions required. And you kind of just, it's almost like extra suffering. Mm. Mm. So if you know you're going to finish the run and you feel worse, then just don't do it. Yeah, you know, and, and like, you know, I know that we're going to come on to talking about compassion and maybe it's a natural, yeah, maybe it's a natural, um, the next C to go to. But, you know, the trails are, you know, the trails are there for you. You know, they are there. You know, I believe being outside in nature, keeping your head up, looking around you, taking it in on the trails is so much better than anything that I've ever experienced from a road perspective. But still, you know, you can be out and it can just be a hard day. So, you know, be compassionate, you know, show compassion to yourself. And if, you know, if you're out there and you're just not feeling it, it's okay to turn around and go home or it's okay to text somebody or call somebody and you know and and you know see if they can kind of talk you through it almost you know show yourself compassion you know we all are in this weird world at the moment where nothing is set in stone everything seems to change by the day of course you know we want to believe that you know going out for a run will help to you know, help us to kind of deal with that or help us to process it. Sometimes it does. And most of the time it does, but sometimes it doesn't. But ultimately I believe that no matter how much I sometimes think I don't want to go out, I don't want to go out running, especially with trail running. I never regret it when I get back, even if I've had to cut a session short. That's really powerful to hear that. And I think there's so many takeaways there. And one thing I want to add to it as well, in terms of like being kind to yourself and I know we're going to get to the compassion side is I think it's also good to be for me be a realist as well so for example during the recent marathon that we spoke about we had really terrible weather in terms of just the winds and the rain and you know that's not ideal sometimes for running but I was sort of I think the way that you speak to yourself is so important and I was having these conversations with myself thinking it's really windy this is really hard and you don't deny that that's the, the actual reality. Mm. But you sort of talk back to it and go, yes, it is windy. It is cold. It is hard work, but I can do hard things. I've done hard things in training. It's almost like you talk back to that voice. Yeah. You don't push it away or pretend it's not there or try and sugarcoat it. Cause we're like, no, it's just rainbows and sunshine and mm. flowers and stuff. Mm. We don't deny it. You just talk back to it. And it's funny when you talk back to it, it, it can actually quieten down because you've actually had that sort of confidence in yourself. I totally, totally get what you're saying. I'm a real believer in, in like the intuition and in the gut, like, you know, that gut feeling, you know, that, that internal dialogue and the importance of addressing it while it's happening rather than trying to push it down. The questions that often come into our minds, especially when I'm trail running and I know from experience and from talking to others about thoughts and feelings they have while trail running you know, often it kind of takes me about 10 minutes just to get into the rhythm of it. And then problems that I might be having, it's that kind of voice. And it's, it might sound crazy, but it's that kind of community, that conversation that you have with yourself, as you say, um, to, 
to kind of address and answer some of those internal questions that you have, I think is really, really powerful. And it's a really great practice to get into out there on the run as well. Um, From compassion, the one thing that I would want to say is is around compassion to others, um, because I have been out on the trails and I've seen other I've seen men, women out there um, who are having a bad day themselves, you know, are maybe, you know, wiping away a couple of tears. Other runners, these are runners um, or just, you know, maybe are out of breath halfway up a hill. And, you know, you can kind of tell almost when somebody's having that their own kind of internal dialogue and just a smile or a, how are you doing or a, you know, we you got this can just make the difference between someone else out there, a fellow trail runner, having a crap run to having an all right run. I think there's real power in acknowledging other trail runners out there. And, you know, we're talking about, we, you know, we're black trail runners here, but the community of trail runners is black, is white, is, you know, and and I think acknowledging that no matter who you are sometimes you can just be having a difficult time and if you're on the trails often it can feel even even harder than if you're just out on a flat road or, or wherever you may be so I think you know let's remember to show compassion for our fellow humans as well because that's what we want as black trail runners we want that compassion and consideration shown to us as an equal participant and an equal people that use the trails so let's not forget to show that to other people who are out there too i agree and it's like people just want to be seen or feel like they're being acknowledged or being heard so yeah yeah i said like a kind word or something like that can be really helpful lift someone and um, just improve their mood for that day you never know yeah you never know what you know I've, i've heard it a lot lately you know, we don't know, you know, you never know what someone is going through. You know, we assume, um, but we don't know. And I always try and remember that a smile can be worth so much to someone. And um, and I try and show that compassion when I'm out, whether I get it back or not. I always try and act as if and treat others as if I would want to be treated myself. Yeah, I agree. So we've kind of covered the compassion should we move on to coaching? Yes. You're a coach as well, aren't you? So, and you're also coached. Yes, I am. I am. And you are coached. Yeah, I'm coached. Yeah. I, I quite like being coached, actually. I mean, even though there's nothing wrong, actually, with being self-coached. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of club runners, fast runners, and or just trail runners that are self-coached. So, I mean, there's, there's not anything wrong with not being coached. But for me, the relationship that I have with my coach is one of just mutual respect we communicate you know each week tailor the training plan we see like how i'm feeling and like you said the mental side has a, a big bearing so like if you're stressed at work or something's happened it's going to have an impact on your training so it's good to have those conversations rather than having say four weeks and if you don't hit a workout or do particular sessions then it kind of makes the other three weeks redundant so mm-hmm. It's good having that communication, someone that you're accountable to. I think just finding that relationship is is crucial. Oh, you're you're so so right. I I believe in 
you know, I believe I, I self-coached myself for many years, you know, from when I started running 11 years ago. Um, and initially when I started um, on the trails, you know, I was all self-coached. I would look for training plans online. I would follow them, you know, generic cha- training plans. But I think for me, when I really started loving trail running and I think really when I knew that I wanted to do the Marathon Day Sub for my 40th, I knew that I wanted to I wanted to kind of be under the wing of someone who had been there, done that, got the T-shirt and, and someone who was a qualified coach and understood the principles of progression, regression, adaptation, could understand about terrain, could understand and also work with me as a mum of four and a businesswoman who needed training to fit into her life, not my life to fit into training. And I think finding somebody, I've worked with uh, one, two, three, I've worked with three coaches um, through trail running and marathon training, and each one serves a different purpose. But ultimately, it's about them really taking time to understand me as a person, what I respond to, where I'll kick my heels and dig them in if I really don't want to do a session and them knowing how to get the best out of me, which translates to my performance. Um, the, The coaching relationship is so special, but there are a lot of people that do it different ways, but certainly how I work is I like that. I like that one to one relationship. And for example, yesterday, you know, I had to do a a 13 mile uh, progressive run and, you know, I had it all down there, what I was going to do. And because my coach knew kind of, you know, what I'd gone through kind of, you know, what I've been going through personally, you know, he just sent me a quick message at like half six in the morning, just reminding me to look up, breathe, take it in. And that meant the world to me because, it's what I needed, but it's that stuff I need to remember at times of of higher anxiety and because it affects our it affects the running. So yeah, coaching is coaching is for me imperative and, and certainly if you're looking to you know, looking to some goals and and you look and you believe that you would work maybe a little bit better with a plan or to be accountable, it's certainly worth looking into coaches. Yeah, I agree. And the way I look at coaching, obviously, if you find the right coach and you have that good relationship, I see it like a marriage. You know, it, you've got to be in it for the long term. You've yeah. got to be in consistency. You can't be like, <laughs> I don't like you, so I'm leaving. That's I it. Mean, there's some workouts I do. I'm like, I don't like my coach. Yeah. But yeah. I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's so true, Marcus, though. It is like a relationship. It is, yeah. Work, there will be workouts on there. You look at them and you feel physically sick because you're like, that is going to take me to another level. And am I ready for it? I'm not ready for it. I'm not, why do they think, why are they doing this to me? But that's the nature of the relationship is kind of pushing those boundaries, allowing you or showing you that you can go to that next level, but there's going to be the hard work involved in it. And I think it is like a marriage, you know, I've had emails back and forth with my coach where I've been like, can I miss the session tonight? And he's like, well, why? And I'm like, well, because, um, (laughs) because I'm tired. And he's like, Sabrina, are you ill? Or are you just, you know, and and literally he said, Sabrina, just go out and see how it goes, you know? And, And I think that, 
I think there's power in that. And for me, it's that accountability as well. I love the way they sort of drill down into the questions. Are you tired? Or are you like, That's I just it. don't want to do it. I just don't <laughs> want to do it. What do you not understand about what I'm saying here? I just don't want to do your session. Exactly. <laughs> and how do you find a good coach, do you think? Word of mouth from other people who are other friends or members of your community who are maybe doing the things that you want to do and you're seeing that you know, that they're getting stronger, they're maybe not getting so injured or they're, or they're just kind of meeting their goals. I think I like, I like a lot of word of mouth. I do, I tend to do a lot of research once I've heard a name, um, do a lot of research into that coach, have a look, see what kind of, you know, how they conduct themselves. Um, but yeah, I, I would say a top tip would be, um, reach out to your community, you know, ask people, you know, are you coach who you coach by, you know, what do you think? And I think, yeah, you will see names come up maybe time and time again, or yeah, I, I, I certainly would say that as point one in terms of how to find a coach. Okay. And when do you think it's time to leave a coach? Ooh, I think it's time. Oh God, that's a hard question, Mark. It's a hard question to answer. I, because it's, it's not it's not a very straightforward answer. Because like you could say, for example, I'm not hitting my results, but then mm-hmm. have you given it enough time? Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 really hard to sort of to jump to move from one coach after to another one if you've not been for long enough time. Mm. But then. You just might not know the way that they work. It, just, it might be a personality clash. You don't feel mm-hmm. like they're supporting you. So there's so many reasons why you can have sort of think about leaving. But if it's not the right fit, yeah. I mean, I think it really is important that it's it, that you know if you're going to use a coach, it's the right fit. I think that, um, and I think you have to give your you have to give it time. Um, but I ultimately think that you know I when I've you know, there's been one coach that I left and it wasn't due to anything negative that was happening. It was just due to, I wanted to change the terrain that I was training on. And that coach wasn't known for coaching for the terrain that I wanted. So I changed coaches. Um, so I, yeah, I have different coaches for different things. So therefore I've, I'm working with a guy that's a marathon coach at the moment and then I'll go back to my mountain coach, Damien, um, kind of in spring next year. So, and that, that, that works really, really well for me. And I've got really good relationships with them, with both those coaches. So I kind of cut my cloth to suit on that one. Yeah, I think that's a great point. If you're looking to go somewhere where that coach doesn't specialize in, then mm. there's nothing wrong with looking no. for a coach that specializes in that area. Yeah, yeah. So I, I completely agree with that. So next one, let's go on to it. And and this was this was a C that this was a C that got loads of suggestions. And it's chafing. Who has chafed when they've been out? Ooh, and when you chafe, sorry, I just had to say that, Marcus. But ooh, but when you've chafed when you've been out on a run, and it can be a 5k, it can be any distance, but if you aren't wearing or you haven't got your uh, well, I'm going to tell you the, what I use in a bit, but when you get in that shower afterwards, oh, everyone knows if you've had chafing, you get in the shower after a run and you know where you have chafed. Am I right? Am I, am I right? Yeah, you're right. And it's not a pleasant thing. So you kind of want to make sure that <laughs> you apply what you need to apply and work in the areas. But like you said, it's it's such a common thing because 
you could be wearing different clothes and it could be the band that is rubbing a certain area or it could be like your t-shirt or something yeah. you could be rubbing a certain part of your, your your arm just little things that start to annoy you and this developer to something full-blown and just angry oh <laughs> so. angry angry chafing i've seen men i mean it's that traditional thing isn't it where you see um if you're watching a marathon or, or you're watching any race it doesn't matter what terrain it's on and you see the blood from the the, the nipple area of the man on the t-shirt i mean that's chafing isn't it? that's chafing yeah. of the nipple yes can i say nipple you can <laughs> <laughs> you said it. Can't take it back now. I can't take it back. But you know, for me as a woman, I'll often find, you know, I've got nice, I've got, you know, a meaty thigh, let's put it that way. And so therefore I find that if I am not, I was just gonna say something that I'm not gonna say, but if I'm not, if I haven't got my chafe stuff on, then my inner thighs will, oh my god, horrendously chafe. To the point where I'm walking around for days like John Wayne because I cannot let that skin touch. <laughs> now it's horrendous. Also for me, the uh, the sports bra line on the chest, I'll often find that where the band or the heart rate monitor, if I'm wearing it, digs in. Oh, red raw, red raw, Marcus. What do you use then to get to to stop you chafing? Vaseline. Vaseline. Yeah. You're a Vaseline Just- man. The way you just said it, like, no, not, not in that way. <laughs> to clarify, I'm not a Vaseline man. <laughs> That's not the term I'd use. I apply Vaseline for races or you know, things like that. So, uh, not, not a general, so, not a general thing. I'm sorry, oh, I just. Like come down the street. Oh, it's a Vaseline man. <laughs> you got the Vaseline across the street. Yeah, I'm gonna say I'm. I found I have tried lots and lots and lots of anti-chafe balms, etc., etc. Now the one that I found that is on my person if I'm out on a run is a wait for it. It's called Butt Shield. <laughs> i swear to god hand on heart it's called butt shield it is uh apparently it was invented initially for cyclists because on the butt area for cyclists is where a lot of chafing tends to happen a cyclist yeah. a cyclist friend recommended it to me about four years ago you can get it as a roll-on it was a game changer for me butt shield i have it on amazon <laughs> Alexa will shout out your order of butt shield has been delivered. Um, but it's yeah, it for me, I'm just putting out there, it works. We're you know, we're not sponsored by them or anything like that, nor Vaseline, but it's a roll-on, it's in a little canister, and I if I apply that, no chafing for Sabrina. Do you know what? That's a very dangerous one to put into Google, to be honest. Yeah. I'd rather put in Vaseline than butt shield because I'm not quite sure what's gonna come up with the search results. <laughs> Um, but if you do get chafed, I want to say yeah. that if you do get chafed again, years and years of research from my part here, yeah. the best thing that you can put on chafing that dries that out, dries it out, is a nappy rash cream called Bipanthum. Okay. It's in a little tube. You can get it from most chemists or online. A little bit of that on the chafed area. Leave it to get some air. 
within a couple of hours, that is starting to dry up, scab over, boom, you're on to the next run. I think essentially just find what works for you and uh, limit those those problems, especially during the training run. So it doesn't sort of become an issue for your races. And something that I do is make sure that I practice what I'm wearing or different combinations of what I'm wearing in my training runs repeatedly, well, depending on the weather as well. So when you get to the race day, you're feeling it's something you can control as well. Absolutely. You don't want that to, to, to derail you because it can really get into your mind. And obviously it's, it's physically uncomfortable. So yeah, um, I think you definitely practice as much as you can in yeah. uh, training as much as possible. Yeah, definitely. Practice, practice, practice. I think we've given Chafin enough uh, coverage there. See yeah. what I did there. Uh, <laughs> we've given Chafing enough coverage. You're doing it again. You keep dropping these lyrical bombs. I think sometimes I try and be funny, but I think with my wife, probably one out of 10 might land. <laughs> so um, I know you're laughing to humor me. So uh, <laughs> let's move on to uh, the final one, which is Coke. Oh, Fat Coke is what I call it. For anyone else that doesn't know what Fat Coke is, it's full sugar Coke. It is deemed as or known as the amber nectar of the trail runner. There is nothing better than to get a quick hit. You know, I'm an ultra marathon runner. I like to go long. Most checkpoints at races we'll have some form of fat Coke for those runners coming through. Oh, it's amazing. Is it not? Only during sort of the races, but in general life, no. No. But I don't no. even though. <laughs> no, only during, like general life, I would never touch fat Coke because yeah. it's full of all sorts. And why would you do that to yourself? But yeah. there's something that happens, you know, and I can only talk about when I it's and it's always when I'm like going longer. Yeah. That all I want is full sugar coke. Nothing else will do. And I know that within the community, the trail running community, when you're out doing those long distance racing, it's what you look forward to when you're coming up to a checkpoint. Like, does it have coke? Does it have enough coke? Have they run out? If they have run out, I'm going to be causing all sorts of trouble. Um, so those race directors, they they always have the fat coke nailed. Yeah. And also I think it goes back to MDS as well. After the long run day, you've got that day off and oh. they give you coke and it's, a, it's almost like <laughs> the oh. angels are sort of... <laughs> oh, yeah. It's yeah. like angels have wrapped their wings around you and just like hugging you close that's what it feels like the day after the long stage of marathon day Saab, when they ask you whether you want a can of fat coke or a can of beer yeah. and oh that fat coke is just it's beautiful it's spiritual marcus it's it spiritual because you've been chugging back like warm water salt tabs mm. you know everything kind of gets tasteless after a while it's just like a different taste it's mm. sort of, i'd say amuse the taste buds Mm, oh gosh yes definitely definitely it's 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 like tiny little angels dancing on your tongue it's amazing <laughs> it is it is and it's funny that you say that because now that past mds for me that's why i always think of coke on a long run like i always think oh i should i like to have a coke but generally i wouldn't usually go for it mm, it's such mm. a funny sort of thing that you sort of link back to but do you think it's also like a, a mental thing that people go towards a coke 
I think it is. When I say Coke, I, Coca-Cola, not yeah. Coca-Cola. <laughs> I think it is. But, you know, I think ultimately the body's glycogen stores, you know, are depleted. So what yeah. the body wants and what the, you know, even the brain, what it wants is it wants that hit. It wants that dopamine rush. And the sugar is what gives that to you. So I think from a, yeah, we joke, we jest about it, but actually the body wants quick hit of, of carbohydrate, you know, and, and for me, fat Coke is one of the quickest hits you can get. Obviously, you know, when you're going long or when you're running, you've got to back that up with real food or whatever fuel it is that you're using. But I've been in some dark places when I either haven't fueled properly or I've just been having a really bad run. And it's amazing what a bottle of fat Coke can do in order to lift the spirits and keep you going. I, I completely agree. And I hope you've all enjoyed the C's. Next time we're going to be back with the D's. So uh, looking forward to hearing your suggestions for that. So now we are on the final part of the show and this is our roundup of races. So in a couple of weeks time, Centurion Running have their last 100 miler of the year, which is the South Downs Way 100, a trail race as it is named along the South Downs Way. Now this race is full. As we've said before, Centurion Running, their races often get sold out really quickly. Um, one of our co-founders, Sonny Peart, is it's his last 100 miler of the Centurion Grand Slam. So he's done 300 milers already. This is his last one. I have put my name down to be a volunteer um, at the race. I'm not sure what I'll get to do yet, but I want to show compassion to runners, especially runners like Sonny, who have done the Grand Slam this year. And hopefully... Next year, maybe I'll have a go at doing it myself. So I'm really looking forward to getting involved in that, Marcus, and uh, and volunteering and and you know trying to egg on those trail runners that are out there competing in the South Downs Way. I think what Sonny's done is amazing. So we're going to have to get him on a podcast and just oh, let yeah. him go through the race by race, and just uh, so inspiring to sort of see. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, he's actually going to be, we're starting a new uh, Black Trail Runners Community 101 Q&A series from the beginning of November. And Sonny's actually going to be one of the first community members that are putting themselves up for us all to ask questions to. So if you're not already a member of the Black Trail Runners Facebook community, hop on because that's a series that we're going to be launching from November. Great stuff. And one of the pressing things as well is just the COVID situation. Obviously, it's different for where you are globally, but here in the UK, we've got the tier system. So that's obviously creating a lot of challenges as well. And I was obviously just mindful of different people's situations and whether they can get out and whether races are not taking place, whether it's safe to go outside and still train or just, just get outside and just move. Mm. It's just so, it's so important for one's physical and mental health mm. i mean yeah it's 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 very difficult isn't it because we we were looking at races that are forthcoming you know maverick is maverick um race series is another um supporter of black trail runners and we're going to be doing some things with them ne next year and we are all due a few of us are due to go and do their stoner park event in december but you know who knows what is going to happen i think that you know the great thing about 
this year is that lots of race organizations have translated their races to kind of virtual events. Of course, it's not the same as being out there treading through the mud with 100, 200, 300, however many other people, but it is an opportunity to stay accountable. It is an opportunity, if you love a medal, if you love the bling, to still get the medal in the T-shirt. Um, and I think that really most of the races that will still go ahead over the next kind of five months are the smaller events, the smaller events that, you know, can potentially be held on a kind of, you know, five, 10 minute window of start times. Um, I think, you know, those mass participation events, it's going to be a while before we see those again. But uh, I think virtual events are a way to kind of keep yourself training, keep yourself out there, you know, and, and, and yeah, keep yourself accountable as well. Yeah, and I think as well, once we all get through this year, it's not been ideal for a number of reasons, but if we can get through this year, it's going to give us so much strength and confidence moving forward into when races do take some sort of form of normality that we recognise from previous years. I think so. I agree t- totally. I, I know that the the races that I have done since we've kind of come out of the first lockdown, I've been so grateful to be there. I've been so much more enthused and passionate about about being out on a trails at an organised event that I really appreciated the industry as a whole and those event organisers that have gone to the next level in terms of ensuring safe COVID secure events. And I think that, you know, I think the the community continues to, to grow and coming out of the other side of this, I'm hoping will come out stronger. I totally agree. And what a great way to wrap it up. Sabrina, it's been great talking to you and for everyone listening. Sorry, I interrupted you. Sorry, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. No, I was just saying it's been great talking to you as well. <laughs> oh, you can tell it's been a long day to It's this. been a long day. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Checkpoint. We appreciate your support. Thank you for joining us at The Checkpoint. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and share online. Also please remember to leave your review on the podcast platform that you selected as it really helps our podcast to grow. Your support helps make this podcast possible. Remember, if you have any questions, get in touch with us via our Instagram page at Black Trail Runners, or if you want to join our community, please search Facebook for Black Trail Runners and connect with us.